From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. As the human population in the Cape Fear region grows, the beaches remain key draws, but they're eroding on a regular basis. And according to a 2020 analysis by Kearns and West, local beach municipalities have spent $137 million to put sand back on their beaches over the last couple of decades. Government officials continue to look for beach-quality sand sources to keep the tourists coming and protect public infrastructure as well as private property. But those sand sources are diminishing. Some sand comes from maintenance dredging of navigational channels. But it's not enough, and it's not always beach quality. So recently, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, the same federal agency that manages the leases for wind energy in the Atlantic, has started to look at frying pan shoals as a possible source for sand. The shoals are on the seaward southeastern side of Baldhead Island. The National Marine Fisheries Service considers the shoals an essential fish habitat. NMFS worries that dredging operations could hurt the resource for both commercial and recreational fishermen. And so BOEM is paying for a study that will examine what exactly is frying pan shoals, who lives there, who breeds there, who moves through the area, and when, and if dredging began on the shoals, how long would it take the ecosystem to recover? One of the species researchers hope to understand better from this four-year study, Atlantic sturgeon. Federal officials banned fishing of Atlantic sturgeon back in 1998. Fourteen years later, officials added the Atlantic sturgeon to its list of endangered species. There are currently only five population segments. The Cape Fear River is a key system supporting the Carolinas' population. If these fish are found in rivers, though, why would ocean dredging affect them? We'll explore that question today. There are a host of other species that raise important questions about the impacts of dredging. Researchers also need to know how dredging would affect the benthic environment, the ecosystem at the ocean floor that holds invertebrate crustaceans, zooplankton, phytoplankton, and that supports the entire marine life cycle. And that... $137 million outlay by local governments for sand. If regional collaboration came into play, would it cost everybody less? And does nourishing one local beach affect other areas? For example, Masonboro Island. This is all part of today's exploration. With me today, Dr. Joe Long, associate professor at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington in the Physics and Physical Oceanography Department. He's also the director of the Coastal Engineering Program. Professor Long, welcome to Coastline. Thanks for having me. Good to have you with us. Dr. Fred Scharf is a professor of fisheries science in UNCW's Department of Biology and Marine Biology. Professor Scharf, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Rachel. Glad to be here. Good to have both of you with us. Now, is one possible outcome from this study a fuller understanding of a sensitive and biodiverse ecosystem that should not see dredging happen at all? It, it is. I think the, the question is not, um, it, it's not that it will be used as a dredging source and we just want to understand something a little about it. It's 
we know that communities are in need of sand, and we know that the communities are going to continue to look for alternative sources of sand, and frying pan shoals stands out as a feature that, that may be that source. And I think that, you know, Bohm is, is interested in studying it to understand just the baseline environment. What are the waves and, and um, currents and sediment transport in the area? How does that affect the benthic environment, the fish species? And so before we understand the system itself, we can't understand the impacts that might occur to that system due to dredging. And given that UNCW has this robust marine science, this internationally recognized marine science program, Professor Scharf, is it a little strange that we've never studied frying pan shoals itself in this kind of a, you know, figuring out what the baselines are and and really who does live there and what it's made of? Yeah, I I think, Rachel, it's frying pan shoals is a really challenging place to work. As, as Dr. Long and I are, are discovering in our early preliminary assessments of, of the kinds of sampling we can do. And I think that we, we have studied parts of frying pan shoals, but we need to establish a baseline of information, and that baseline requires comprehensive sampling across space and time. And most of what's been done has been in small pieces of time, short windows of time in specific areas. And so we use that information to inform how we're going to design our study, but no one's done a comprehensive evaluation of that ecosystem. Can you describe just kind of physically where it is and what we think it's made of right now? Like what a shoal, people who aren't marine people might think, oh, sounds like a lot of sand in a shallow area. But what is it? We typically think of it as a, a sand ridge that extends per- perpendicular from the coastline. So in, in our North Carolina shoreline, we have these big, long bays, and then they're separated by these capes, Cape Hatteras, Cape Lookout, Cape Fear Region. And so these shoals, we call them cape-attached shoals. And so they are these long, straight, linear sand features that extend from that cape out into the ocean, out 15, 20 kilometers offshore. And so many of them, other, there's been studies at Cape Lookout and, and um, or Lookout Shoals and Diamond Shoals that, that suggest that they are pretty much all unconsolidated sand. They are big piles of sand. Um, we don't have the same level of detail at Frying Pan Shoals to know if there's a hard bottom area that we might encounter, that it is all sort of this unconsolidated sand, and that's a part of the study. We'll look at the geological characteristics themselves. Do we know about how long it is? I mean, when you look at it on Google Maps, you can see this, what you're describing, Professor Long, this sort of long, narrow stretch. But how do, how do you measure that? And how big is it, actually? It's an interesting question. So I, I you know, we extend to sort of when we, when we see those ocean contours start to become long and straight and, and, um, and uniform again, right? The shoal sticks out as a feature um, in in that water depth, and so we kind of have to define what the where does the edge of the shoal start, and I don't think that we've even done that as part of you know the study yet. So we, we'll, in order to quantify and do these geological studies, we'll have to sort of figure out that that volume of sand that even exists in frying pan shoals. Yeah, and so one of the important species that you'll be looking at in this study, Atlantic sturgeon. So we know they're endangered. There's a fishing moratorium that was a 25-year-long moratorium. Is that lifting this year? Oh, absolutely not. So, <laughs> <laughs> so there, 
you know, the, the moratorium was put in place in 1998. Um, but even prior to the moratorium, there wasn't much fishing that occurred, you know, beginning in the turn of the century up until 1998. So there, there were fisheries in the Cape Fear that were remnant fisheries through the, through the mid part of the century and even as, as late into the 70s, 80s, and 90s. But the numbers of fish that were captured were very low just because the population didn't support that many fish. And so the expectation, I think, in, in, at the federal level was that because the sturgeon fishing had subsided or at least reduced a lot from the turn of the century that they would recover. And they hadn't recovered. And by 1998, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission said, hey, these guys haven't recovered in nearly the capacity that we expected, so we need to stop all fishing now. And so that happened in 1998. And then in 2012, the National Marine Fisheries Service classified them as endangered. So even with the fishing moratorium, yeah. they still didn't come back. Correct. In f- over 14 years. Why not? So there, so the, the, the threats to Atlantic sturgeon are, are numerous, um, but the, the, two biggest, the two biggest causes of the population decline were, were overfishing initially in the early part of the 20th century, but then the construction of dams in many of the coastal rivers that impeded their mig- migration to historic spawning grounds. And so, and the number of dams just proliferated throughout the mid part of the 20th century. And so that has been a major impediment to their recovery is just lack of access to the spawning grounds. Since they were put on the endangered species list, has there been any further recovery? Or you're studying them now. What, what are you hoping to find out, uh, not necessarily as part of this frying pan shoal study, but, but your other work with the sturgeon? So what, what we, we started our, our work on Atlantic sturgeon in the Cape Fear River in 2021. And, and basically, we're trying to establish that we have a spawning population in the river. So you mentioned the distinct population segments. Each one of those segments along the coast are, consist of numerous riverine populations. And because sturgeon show very uh, specific natal homing, so they return to their natal river where they were born to spawn, those, you, those river populations are genetically distinct. And so we don't actually know that we have spawning adults that are successfully spawning in the Cape Fear River. At least we didn't until 2021. The evidence that we've accumulated so far suggests very strongly that we do. So we have, we have captured adult males and females in the areas where we hypothesize they're spawning, which is just below lock and dam number one, which is the first impediment to migration on the Cape Fear. We've also captured what are what we consider river resident juveniles. These are fish that were born in the Cape Fear and have yet to leave the system. And so those are two really strong pieces of evidence that we have spawning in the Cape Fear River. We still don't know the extent of it. We don't know the size of the spawning population. It varies quite a bit along the coast. There are major systems along the coast, like the James River in Virginia and the rivers in Georgia that support very large populations. Other systems support very few. And we're going to find out also what this has to do with activity that might take place on the ocean floor. You're listening to Coastline. It's an exploration of one of the Cape Fear region's 
perhaps more mysterious underwater areas, frying pan shoals. After this break, more with UNCW researchers Joe Long and Fred Scharf. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Frying Pan Shoals is just past Baldhead Island on the seaward side. It's a federally designated essential fish habitat, but the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management wants to find out what it's made of, which species live, breed, and migrate through, and ultimately whether it's a good source for beach sand. Fred Scharf is a professor of fisheries science in UNCW's biology and marine biology departments. And Joe Long is director of UNCW's coastal engineering program and associate professor in the physics and physical oceanography department. They're working on a four-year study to assess the frying pan ecosystem. And Professor Scharf, just before we went to break, you were explaining Uh, some of what we know and a lot of what we don't know about the Atlantic, the endangered Atlantic sturgeon population that is in the Cape Fear River. So if we're talking about frying pan shoals on the other side of Baldhead Island, out in the ocean, in federal waters, uh, why are we concerned about Atlantic sturgeon from the river? Great question. So, so Atlantic sturgeon have an anadromous life history, and what we mean by that is they spend life as adults in the ocean, and then they return to their natal rivers to spawn. And so the sturgeon life history can be broken up very broadly into three life stages, the, the river resident juveniles that are in their natal system, and then a very long sub-adult life stage that lasts from anywhere from three to ten years. And the sturgeon don't become mature adults until probably age 10 or later, depending on latitude. And those sub-adult and adult life stages spend the majority of their time in the ocean and particularly moving in between coastal river systems. And so the sub-adult stage is very exploratory. And so the fish that we have in the Cape Fear, we've captured many fish that were originally tagged in rivers in South Carolina and Georgia. And so the extent of mixing is high. And the adults are, and, and the sub-adults have been shown to be captured when they're in the ocean in shallow nearshore areas, generally at depths less than 50 feet and usually within 10 miles of the coast. And so there's a, the, they, they tend to migrate along the coastal boundaries. And so the expectation is that they spend a lot of time crossing and spending time around frying pan shoals. Professor Long, one of the questions that you're looking into is the effect that sand extraction from an area could have on wave dynamics. Is that right? And why would that matter? What do what effect do wave dynamics have on a particular ecosystem? What how, how does a wave dynamic affect anything other than the top surface of the water? Yeah, so 
the shape and the, the form that we see waves when they come to the coastline is directly related to the underlying um, depth or the bathymetry. And we kind of see that on, on beaches where we have sandbars. We see waves break over a sandbar, maybe reform and break again at the coastline. So it's that bathymetry, it's that underwater feature that's really changing their shape and their form and where they break and where they suspend sediment. And so a lot of times if we are to dredge an area, especially if you're going to dredge a sort of deep pit in one area, that will change what the wave looks like on the surface. And when you change what the waves look at the surface, whether they will turn in different directions, whether they will shoal or get bigger in different areas, that can change sort of everything from the top of the water column, the thing we see about the waves, to the bottom, which is the plunging of the wave that might suspend that sediment or disrupt the benthic environment. And so this whole system, and really the reason we're studying frying pan shoals as this integrated system of physics and biology is is because you can't disconnect these things. And so what does that mean, this sediment suspension? Because reading the white paper that was sort of the precursor to the expert conversation workshop that you guys had at, before the study, some of this pre-study work, it talked about sediment resuspension as one of the concerns if dredging happened. And it found in some instances, I think that even a year and a half later, there was evidence of resuspension of sediment. What is the significance of that? Yeah, I, I think it, it does two things. One, it disrupts the, the benthic environment, so the things that are living on or under the, you know, the ocean floor. And so it can suspend those where they don't want to be suspended from the seafloor. And the other thing is that it changes the, the clarity of the water or the turbidity of the water when we suspend sediment. And that can have impacts to everything that's living in that water column or relying on, on sort of that water column. I think... Um, and there's suspension in two different ways. There's suspension during dredging operations. So sometimes you'll read about the impacts of that. And then there's the potential for suspension during during wave activity. The other thing about dredging these these borrow areas is it, it's, it is partially that sort of we change the wave dynamics, we might change the suspension. But what we always want to make sure of in studies is that we're not changing where we might focus wave energy. And that's usually when we when we try to look at the impacts of dredging a particular pit. That's one of the biggest things is that if you, if you cause the waves to, to turn and maybe turn on themselves, you're focusing wave energy like you would if you take two flashlights, right, and, and shine the beams at each other. And if we focus wave energy, we're increasing the wave height in one area. We're increasing the currents that might develop, sort of the impacts to the seafloor. And so that's really what we're checking for. The impacts to the seafloor. Okay, so part of that, part of that would be suspension of components of the benthic environment. I just want to make sure I understand this. So when we're talking about sediment suspension, it's these aren't inanimate objects. They're not grains of sand, Professor Scharf, that we're talking about. Not, we're, not always, right? So certainly they're little sand animals. is part, right? But there's lots of little animals that that live in in sediment. So these these benthic infaunal communities are are disrupted and. When, when there's dredging activity and, and, and any, any active gear that's pulled through those areas. So there's been a lot of research looking at the impacts of fishing gear like trawls and dredges on these benthic communities. And those have been used to inform the, the potential impacts of, of sand dredging to look at how those benthic communities are disrupted 
and how long they take to recover. And it depends, right? Depends on how often they're disrupted. Depends on the, the natural landscape because there's, there's natural events that can disrupt those communities as well. And, and the good thing is that in many cases, those benthic communities can recover fairly quickly. The composition may not be entirely the same in terms of the exact species that were there before, but in terms of the function of that community, it can recover quickly um, on the order of months. And right? what do you mean in function? Do you mean um, the, the creatures that make up the benthic community, or do you mean the creatures that feed on the benthic? I think both, right? And from, from the standpoint of the, the essential fish habitat desig- designation, is, is looking at how that habitat <clears throat> functions for fish. And the benthics are, the benthic component in those communities are a really key part of how those habitats function for fish, which is why our study is really starting from the bottom up, right? Understanding some of the physics, understanding the geological components, the composition of the sediment, and then understanding the benthic communities and how those benthic communities then translate up to to plankton communities, both zooplankton and, and small fish, ichthyoplankton communities, and then the migratory fish that use those habitats seasonally or on a regular basis. And so it's really a bottom-up process, and so that's why, as Dr. Long said, the study needs to be integrated at multiple levels so that we can understand the impacts of dredging are going to be most acute on the sediment and the benthic communities that live in those, but then the effects of those are felt across the food web. And dredging also can, I mean, the term entrain gets used when we're talking about other species mortality, uh, like sea turtles, for instance. And I think there are several endangered or threatened species of sea turtle in this area, like Kemp's Ridley, loggerhead, leatherback, green sea turtle. We know whales probably migrate through that region. These species, though, aren't the focus of your study. They, they are not directly the focus of our study. Why although, is that? Why is that when they're, such, when they're considered to be such important and protected species? Well, I think that um, I think in the case, you know, in particular the case of whales, right, I think that the, the, the function of frying pan shoals to the, the, to the whales is, is not a very strong direct linkage. They may be passing through there seasonally, in those areas, but it's not clear that that that, that dredging impacts would would have any direct impacts on whale migration through there. We we do have to account for the potential interaction with whales with our sample gear, because we if we have sample gear that that is going to have lines extended in the water, they have to have whale safe links in case they they interacted with our gear. Um, but so, the, so the whale is swimming through the area, comes in contact with the gear, <clears throat> and instead of getting entangled, we have a whale-safe link that has a breaking strength that's been demonstrated experimentally to that it will break to, when a when a whale hits it based on the force they hit the line with. Right. Okay. Right. Sorry. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. So, so we so we think that you know we we have to account account for those, but but we think that the the impacts from the dredging will be felt most acutely at the benthic level, early life stages of fishes, potentially larval transport, and early juveniles that depend on those benthic critters directly. And then the impacts of the dredging get less as we move up the food chain. 
Professor Long, how does dredging itself contribute to shoreline erosion? So usually the way, if, if it contributes to shoreline erosion, it's in one of these ways we talked about where we've dredged an area, we've changed the wave dynamics, and now we may have an area where we have increased erosion or changed the alongshore sediment transport dynamics where we're now taking sand and moving it in two different directions and leaving an erosion spot in between. Typically, we, they mine for sand in inlets or far enough offshore where you won't alter those wave dynamics and won't enhance any you know shoreline erosion that wasn't already happening before you dredged and, and placed sand. One of the interesting questions that you've raised is how would things change if we brought all the stakeholders to the table when we decided when a particular municipality decides it needs to re-nourish its beach. And you can't really separate. I mean, the sand doesn't think in terms of municipal lines or, or boundaries. You can't really separate the dynamics from one town to the next, can you, when you're talking about a region that's full of beach towns? Yeah, I think just like we can't separate the, the physics and the biology at Frying Pan Shoals, we cannot separate Wrightsville Beach from Masonboro Island. And so these the sand is moved by waves and currents you know, into the inlets that separate these islands or across those inlets. And so this is a connected system. And in many ways, when we make decisions, we make decisions um, very, very locally in, in meaning that, you know, a town who is raising funds and paying for their, their sand, you know, um, placements, they do so on a regular interval pr to protect some things that they need to protect. But in many ways, we might be able to expand that view and consider, for instance, New Hanover County as a whole and all of the islands that are in New Hanover County. And maybe it's not the way we do it now, which is a regular interval. Every four years, we've got to raise the money. We've got to place sand on, on the beach. Maybe this island doesn't need it quite so much, and this island needs it a little bit more. And so if we start thinking regionally, I think we could maximize our efforts or make the process more efficient in in an area where we already have diminishing resources of sand, as you mentioned, we need to be a little bit smarter about how we use them and where we use them. And how does re-nourishing Wrightsville Beach, for example, affect Masonboro Island? And, and what, what are the different goals that you would need to think about when doing both things? Yeah, so when we, uh, certainly when we nourish one island, um, some of that sand may migrate down drift to another island. That is actually a, a good benefit to the down drift island, right? But if we are taking all of the sand from an inlet that separates two islands and always putting it on one island and not the, the other, then we've cut off a natural source of sand to that island. Um, Wrightsville and Masonboro are extra interesting because we also have jetties. We have structures that we've placed um, that separate those those two islands, um, and but those two islands they they operate so differently. Whereas you know Wrightsville Beach, the, the stakeholders in Wrightsville Beach, they nourish the beach for um, very different reasons than Masonboro may want to nourish their beach. Masonboro, the stewardship of Masonboro Island is about habitat. It's about preserving that habitat, and so they might actually want to promote overwash in some areas because there are certain species like plover that like overwash deposits, and so. They're managed for different reasons. They might still both benefit from sand placements, but in different places at different frequencies and, you know, in just in different ways. The, the quality of sand has 
tremendous importance for beach towns when they're talking about the kind of sand they put on their beaches. But does grain, sand grain size or shape make a difference to which fish, for example, would choose to spawn or live or feed around frying pan shoals? And I guess, Professor Scharf, I, I should be directing this question to you because frying pan shoals itself, we think, has different ecosystems within it and different qualities of sand in different places. Yeah, I think that the in terms of the, the sediment grain size and, and the composition of the sediment and and how it interacts with the biological community, again, I think that the, the link to fish is more indirect through the benthic communities. And so certainly benthic communities are definitely associated with different kinds of sand, whether we see mud or hot or very coarse sand. Um, and the fish communities, certainly some of the species that are very strongly tied to the benthic environment, some of the flat fishes and the demersal species that are closely associated with the bottom can associate more with certain kinds of sands than others. I think that's one of the things that we're hoping to find out is, is how, those, how the, the composition of the sand changes in space and time. I think one thing that's important for, I think, the, the listeners to maybe understand and what we're learning about frying pan shoals is, is just how dynamic the system is. And you, you had asked before about the length of the shoals, and I think it varies, right, from, from year to year and season to season in terms of the height of the, the crest and the, the length of the shoals and the composition of the sand. And so this study is going to provide that important baseline to make sure that we um, have the information to understand the spatial and temporal variation as a backdrop so that we can better understand the impacts of any dredging activities that does it, that, that do occur. And just going back to the, the size and composition of the sand, does that affect, aside from just aesthetics on, on a beach and how it feels and, and looks to people, does the size and shape change how quickly it might get washed off a beach or slide off a beach? Or how does that work, Professor Long? It, it does, absolutely. And so the very the fine-grained sands, they are easier to move, either by waves or by winds. And so you can imagine if a beach is, is replenished with um, that very fine-grained sand, it will probably wash away more quickly than a coarse, uh, than a coarse you know, heavier grain of sand. It can also be, you know, blown up and over the dunes faster than maybe a coarser sand. So it definitely changes the dynamics. It even changes the slope of the beach. So these coarser grain sands can maintain a steeper slope of a beach than the finer grain sands can. And so you, and when you change the slope of the beach, you change the wave runup. And when you change the wave runup, it has this cascading effect on all of the dynamics of the system. Right. And so as you look at these species, and you you were saying, Professor Scharf, that you are hanging, I'm going to mangle this, an acoustic curtain of sorts? Is that, I'm going to ask you to describe this so that we can understand how you will be gathering this data. Yeah, wh- one of the tools that, that we use to understand the, the movements of fish and habitat use patterns of fish is, is acoustic telemetry, where, where fish have have tags either implanted internally or attached externally. Those tags give off an acoustic transmission that can be, that, ha- that travels long distances underwater. And 
and has a unique signal. And we're going to hear more about this when we come back from this break. You're listening to Coastline. It's an exploration with UNCW professors Joe Long and Fred Scharf of what we know of frying pan shoals just off the coast of North Carolina and what we hope to learn after this short break. If a dredging operation were to take place there, what are some of the ways to mitigate environmental harm? Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Frying pan shoals is a long stretch of sand at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Or is it? The Bureau of Ocean Energy Management is funding a four year study to find out exactly what the shoals are made of, how the sand moves, which species of fish live, breed, and migrate through the area and what the benthic environment is like there. The lead researchers on this project are with me today. Joe Long is director of the Coastal Engineering Program at UNCW. He's also an associate professor in the Physics and Physical Oceanography Department. Fred Scharf is a fisheries science professor in UNCW's Department of Biology and Marine Biology. He also studies endangered Atlantic sturgeon. And Professor Scharf, just before we went to break, you were explaining the acoustic curtain, which will be placed in the ocean. Uh, you were talking about different species of fish that will be tagged with unique tags. What what do the tags do, and how will you tag them? So, so as I mentioned, so that the tags are, are um, acoustic transmitters, and they, they each give off a unique signal. So, once we put it in a fish, if that if that tag is detected, we know which fish it was, and the the <clears throat> the link is these acoustic receivers that we have to position on the bottom in the ocean, and the fish has to swim within a specific detection range of those receivers. The receiver is, is the unit that stores the data. So it stores every fish that passed by it. It timestamps those, those detections so that when we retrieve the receiver later, we can see which fish passed by and when. And so... The plan is to deploy uh, an array of these receivers along frying pan shoals, starting from close to close to the beach and state waters, and then extending out federal waters at least to the edge of the area that Bohm is is interested in, which is probably about ten miles offshore. And the idea is that we'll we'll tag fish, mostly federally managed fish. The reason, like, like what? So these would be some of the coastal shark species. Um, some of the uh, pelagic species like cobia and king mackerel, as well as species like adult red drum. And we're already tagging Atlantic sturgeon. Mm -hmm. And so we've gotten permission <clears throat> as part of our sampling permit to, to tag additional Atlantic sturgeon that we would encounter as part of this study. When we're, we're doing our work on the shoals, we can tag additional fish. So what's the difference between the Atlantic sturgeon that you would be tagging as part of the study that you're doing separately from frying pan shoals and, and the extra sturgeon that you would be tagging? The, the sturgeon that we, that we may encounter 
doing our fisheries work on frying pan shoals may not be Cape Fear River fish. They could be migratory fish from other rivers. And so if we catch those fish, we'll evaluate whether they have tags in them already. And if they don't, we'll be allowed to put tags in those fish. And then the nice thing about the the acoustic tags is depending on the size of the tag, which um, the, the size of the fish dictates the size of the tag that we're able to use, some of the tags can be programmed to have 10-year battery lives. So we can follow the movements of fish for a decade. Those are the tags that we're using in sturgeon. And for larger adult fish, some of the small coastal sharks or adult red drum, those are the tags that we would use. So we would be able to follow the movements of these fish for a decade. We're going to get to mitigation strategies if if dredging were to occur. But this is just really interesting. The You have to get a special permit from the feds to tag Atlantic sturgeon and do this and learn how to do this special kind of surgery on sturgeon. Is that, pro- and I'm going to ask you to just briefly describe that process, but before you do, is that process different from the way you will tag, say, a red drum for the frying pan shoal study? Not necessarily. Um, and so in, in most cases, um, for internal tag placement, the tags are placed within the abdominal cavity. And so we make a small incision in the, on the ventral surface, sort of the belly of the fish. Um, and it, the size of the incision depends on the tag that we're inserting. Depend, the bigger tags that have longer battery lives require a larger incision. And then the tag is placed within the abdominal cavity. And then we use sutures, just like you would use on, on yourself, to, to close up the, the wound. And, and then the healing process has been evaluated in laboratory studies many over the last two decades or so. And so we follow pretty standard protocols. The, the sturgeon require a special permit because they're endangered. Um, and that in a you know, worst case scenario is a sturgeon would suffer a mortality during a, sur- during a tagging sturger- a surgery. And so we have some special protocols in terms of temperatures and handling times and amount of time out of water. And we also had to develop some very specific protocols in terms of exactly where the tag is placed. Because one of the, the primary cause of mortality during a tagging surgery is if an internal organ is cut by accident. And so we have a special location where we tag the sturgeon that minimizes that risk. Between the fourth and fifth, fifth. skewt. Ventral skewt. What's a skewt? <laughs> it's, a, it's a bony structure that's embedded within the dermal layer of the fish. Sturgeon are unique in that they have these bony skewts, um, and they, they grow with the animal, and, and, um, but they remain, sturgeon remain one of the only few fishes that have skewts like this that are just left over from sort of prehistoric relatives. And they have really thick skin, so was it difficult to learn how to how to get through the skin without stabbing them to death? <laughs> I'm sorry. It is. It is. It's, it's just um, it's, it's really just a slow process. And so the idea is when we make the incision, it's we make a very shallow incision and then just continue to go deeper very slowly until we until we get to the abdominal cavity rather than try to get through the skin very quickly. It's a it's a very slow process. That's the longest part of the surgery, is making the incision. 
you know, that can take a f- several minutes to make that incision. And then once we make the incision, tag insertion and suturing goes very quickly. And no mortality so far? None so far. Knock on wood. Okay. So uh, I could ask so many more questions about sturgeon, but that's going to be a different episode. Just one more thing. What's the difference between Atlantic sturgeon and short-nosed sturgeon? And are short-nosed sturgeon part of this study? So, so short-nosed sturgeon are, are a separate species. Historically, they do, they do live in the Cape Fear River. They don't get as large, um, and they don't show ocean migratory tendencies, so they remain in their river. They're and just so, river fish. Right. And, and we have not encountered one since 2021, since we started. Um, some previous work that was done in the Cape Fear River in the early 90s captured, I want to say, two or three short-nosed sturgeon in, some, in sampling that they did. But we have not encountered one so far. Professor Long, if, if Bohm decides that frying pan shoals is a good source for sand and they can find a window where disposable species are there and nobody else is, how will you mitigate the harm that will be done to the environment? Yeah, I think that the, the project is, is really aimed at developing this understanding, collecting this data, developing some models um, to understand the, the system of the shoals. So for instance, how the sand gets there. Is it all coming from the northern beaches? Is, do we have sediment that's also coming from the river to help sort of support and, and grow this, this shoal? And hopefully all of the tools and the data that we're collecting and this baseline information, they can reduce the, any hazard or, 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 or mitigate the risk by picking areas that infill very fast, right? So if you disrupt the shoal because you've dug sand out of it, maybe we should do it in an area that infills very fast because that's where the sediment is being sort of deposited fastest. At the same time that there's not a particular species there that we need to protect or when the benthic environment is not as active. And so it's our hope we we have eight different deployments. So we'll be out there eight different times collecting a whole suite of, of data. In addition to these acoustic receivers, we'll have wave buoys and, and, and current measurements and, um, you know, sampling the plankton and what does the temperature and the salinity look like and how is that connected to the Cape Fear. And by understanding that whole process across seasons and across years, we can hopefully provide them the information to pick that window or that location on the shoal that would reduce any of the, the risk. Is it is it likely that and scientists probably hate these kinds of questions where let's just play a game and take a guess but but is it likely that there are windows throughout the year where there aren't important species that would be seriously harmed by i mean just reading through some of the species of concern it seems like they all have different uh, times that they spawn and they have different times that they're migrating through. And I was trying to sort of figure out where there's going to be a window where nobody's, you know, they're all chilling by the Cape Fear River and nobody's in the shoals. Maybe it's not an area that, now maybe it's not a time that's totally inactive, but maybe it's a time if we understand the dredging operation and the impacts of dredging, you know, it's different. It's location specific and it's species specific. And so, If we understand that, it might not be that it's inactive, but it might be that that's a particular species that's not sensitive to this particular operation at that time. Right, and it it may be a life stage that's not as sensitive at a particular time. So what we, you know, we think 
that when we, you know, most of the acoustic tagging is going to be on adult fish. And one of the nice things about the acoustic tagging is that we have a collaborative network of researchers up and down the coast that also have these kinds of acoustic listening devices in their systems and outside of their systems in the coastal ocean. And all that data is shared through a collaborative network. So we expect we'll hear lots of other people's fish that are passing through frying pan shoals. We, we expect the, the adult fish are very transient in their use of the shoals, in that they're migrating through the shoals. We're hoping we can identify periods of peak activity and peak migration so that we could try to avoid those. We think from a, a resident standpoint, though, it may be that there's some earlier life stages, early juvenile stages that may be more resident on the shoal year round and if we can identify the spatial dynamics of that, that we can identify areas of the shoals that would be least impactful to those life stages. And so the, do the juvenile life stages, they are just more sensitive life stages than adults? They're, 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 they're certainly going to be more sensitive um, in terms of, of dredging operations from the acute effects of the dredging, you know, direct mortality. They feed on the benthos directly most of them. And so they would be impacted directly in terms of mortality and feeding. Um, they're also potentially resident in places for longer periods of time. And so they're not just using the shoals in a transient way, but they're using the shoals all the time. And so identifying sort of the spatial contribution or distribution of those life stages is going to be an important component of what we do, of what we do. Professor Long, you've said that you uh, are sort of, you think there are some areas where retreat instead of consistent renourishment is probably a better option, but there are certainly, but beach nourishment has its place and it just depends on the community that you're talking about and what the goals are. Are there areas in the Cape Fear region that you think might be better served by retreat and where continuous renourishment is just a ridiculous, expensive exercise in, in futility. Yeah, I think a lot of the recent examples we see are, are actually more further north in, in the Outer Banks where we hear about these houses in Rodanthe and those kinds of things. I think probably the most vulnerable area in our region are the areas close to inlets. And so we have sort of, you know, there's the barrier island itself that in the middle of the barrier island, it wants to erode or retreat or overwash sort of naturally. But inlets are highly dynamic. If you sort of look at how an inlet has migrated over 30 years, if there's no structures on it, it, it sort of wavers from side to side. And that means that one barrier island gets really long and the other one starts to erode. And so those, I think, in our region, those areas close to the inlets are where we see sometimes houses become most threatened. And so um, we need to think about sort of maybe historically look at that migration back and forth and, and decide on construction setbacks that are maybe a little bit longer than they have been in the past. And so I think those are probably our most vulnerable areas that we could consider um, retreat as an option. Do you think if we took this kind of regional perspective into account in a, um, and got a little more efficient in terms of cost outlay and um, also just looking at the different goals and how those different sand goals affect one another in a region, 
could the need for beach renourishment lessen if we got smarter about how we do it? I mean, I think we would still need it, but I think the the frequency or the the volume could be decreased because we wouldn't be trying to place the same volume at the same frequency on on each beach. And so, um, uh, you know, the metrics that we use to say we need to renourish every three or four years are sometimes quantitative and sometimes not quantitative. It's that that's what we've done, and we're going to keep on that schedule to make sure we don't lose any ground. Maybe losing a little ground is okay here and there. And so that's where this sort of being able to have everybody at the table and all of the perspectives, all of you know the needs, here's what I value, here's what I value, here's the area we value, here's the area maybe we don't value as much and we can turn it into a green space and we can allow it to overwash. And that sort of land use and land planning at the more regional level, I think, would allow us to decrease maybe some of our need on uh, sand placements. And that is this edition of Coastline. Professor Long, Professor Scharf, thank you both so much for being with us today. Thank you. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Find us on Facebook at WHQR's Coastline Hosted By. You can find the episode at whqr.org along with resources. And look for it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.